Good afternoon, and welcome to the Fairbank Center series on critical issues for contemporary China. I'm Bill Overholt from Harvard's Kennedy School. It's a pleasure to introduce Professor Anne-Marie Brady, who is a professor of politics and international relations at the University of Canterbury in New Zealand, and also a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, DC. We're particularly grateful to her because it's 5.30 in the morning in, in New Zealand where she is. She's an expert on Chinese foreign and domestic policies and on the geopolitics of the Arctic, the Antarctic and Oceania. Professor Brady is the author of five books and has also edited numerous books. Her most recent books provide path-breaking research on China's aspirations to be an, a polar power uh, and an edited collection on how smaller Western democracies are coping with their geopolitical challenges. She's going to talk to us today about the role of the United Front in China's foreign policies. Professor Brady, over to you. I will just jump in real quick before we start, just so people know how to do questions, because I'm sure there will be plenty. Um, there's a Q&A tab in the bottom of your screen. Uh, please just click on that. If you want to ask a question, you can ask the question anonymously. Um, but if you choose not to do so, please let us know who you are and uh, your institution. Uh, thank you. Tenakoto Kato, warm Pacific greetings. Thank you very much um, for hosting me today. And it's my great pleasure to share with you my research and thinking on um, how uh, democracies and, uh, and other states can address China's political interference activities. So I'm going to use um, uh, the full, a, a, a sort of framing um, that we often have on social media today, how it started, what's happening now. And so that's the, um, the title of my talk, how it started, uh, what's happening now, magic weapons. So I want to start with the, um, the how it started. I'm a specialist on uh, China's uh, Chinese domestic and foreign policy, and as well as um, polar politics and New Zealand foreign policy, as, as it was said. And in 2017, I was invited to be part of a edited book project um, looking at China's political interference activity. And as was uh, the gentleman on my right, John Garno, who was formerly a journalist um, for the Sydney Morning Herald and, and became an advisor for the Turnbull government in Australia. And he'd been involved in a big project for a couple of years, um, which was um, for, the, for, for the Australian government, whereas I'd been working on my research, um, which had a lot of overlaps and we'd had many contacts over the years on how the CCP works and the policies of the CCP. So I was asked to look at a case study on New Zealand, on China's political interference in New Zealand. 
And um, John was giving the example for the group about Australia's political interference, because the over China's political interference in Australia, the overall theme of our group project was China's political interference activities around the world. But when I started to do my research, I found a lot more than our editor uh, may have thought that I was going to find. And I uh, actually got to the point of thinking that if I had to go, I couldn't wait for academic publishing, which could literally took three years for that book to come out. And that I, um, that I needed to go public with my research because I found some very concerning um, pieces of information, for example, the in, impact of um, considerable donations coming to our political parties from CCP connected individuals, an MP, member of parliament who disguised his uh, working for Chinese military intelligence for 15 years um, before he'd come to New Zealand and so on. And John also had a big uh, body of information which didn't go public um, initially. So we both came to this conference um, workshop in Arlington with um, uh, these bombshell um, revelations and both of us, and we discussed it with our fellow participants, it was a closed workshop, and both of us separately had our meetings in Washington, D.C., as we, as in his case, well organised because he was coming uh, with uh, the awareness of the Australian government. In my case, I'm a scholar, and I have many long-standing associations in Australia, in, in Washington, D.C., and so it was like two rockets going into the um, US administration, New Zealand and Australia with um, really severe cases of China's political interference. And it really fed into the zeitgeist, it sort of crystallized um, thinking in the US administration. And, and my um, research went public um, the two days after the conference and, and um, the work that John had done was already being shared in Australia and had already been started to, to talk about. We now have a global conversation uh, on this topic and we weren't the only ones. Of course, there are others who are at our workshop who are working on it, but uh, our work helped, well, like, was like a spark plug that helped to um, engender the, uh, a much more um, focused conversation about the issue and what to do. And this connection has actually been acknowledged by, it was acknowledged in January this year um, by um, one of the former senior officials of the previous administration. So that's how it started. And I'm now going to talk about the, the changes and the developments um, behind Chinese foreign policy that led up to what we're talking about and what kind of remedies uh, different governments have had. So China and the world, according to uh, CCP General Secretary Xi Jinping, is in a new era. China um, is now aspiring to be a global great power and in many ways meets the measures of um, how we assess a great power and is seeking change in the global order. And Xi Jinping's policies are building on long-standing thinking within the CCP, but also two decades of double-digit growth. Xi Jinping's um, administration is able to take action on ambitions that have been there uh, long-standing. And the concept of uh, rich country, strong military 
um, Fu Chang is the shorthand version of it, um, is um, one of the ways in which that, um, that thinking is, is symbolized, that China will have a um, strong military and be rich and prosperous. That's a, that's a synonym for the status that China seeks. And in, in global terms, that's China is a great power. So what I have identified in my research is the three prongs of um, China's contemporary foreign policy. Um, state to state, we're familiar with that, relations between governments and officials. And we're increasingly seeing military shows of force in the South China Sea, but also beyond um, the South China Sea down into the South Pacific, for example, into the Arctic. Um, and the third prong are covert activities, and these include United Front work. And United Front work has in um, CCP history been used for intelligence, but it's also been used as a way to bring together uh, non-party members to get acceptance and acquiescence for CCP rule, and also to influence and shape key elites. People have um, traditionally thought of United Front work as something that was only focused on China's domestic needs or it was only targeted at, at Chinese people. Um, but there is something called un International United Front work, and it's always been um, a CCP policy. It was very prominent in the 1930s and 40s. And that's what we're seeing internationally today is China's international um, front work. Um, playing out in, in different countries. That's how the party calls it, um, how uh, countries like New Zealand and Australia and the US would call it as um, political interference activities and milder versions uh, of it or less uh, co-optive or coercive or corrupting might be called political influence activities. And Xi Jinping uh, calls United Front work uh, a magic weapon and he's taking his terminology from Mao Zedong, <clears throat> who said that the three magic weapons of the Chinese revolution were armed struggle, in other words, the, the role of the PLA, party discipline, and united front work. It was the united front work that, um, for example, led to the surrender of Beiping, the, um, the what is now Beijing, from internal um, members of the party within who were within the administration there. So United Front Work has had a really important role for the CCP, but it's really been emphasized under Xi Jinping and re-resourced. And um, as I've shown in my research, contemporary United Front Work combines a nexus of party, state, military and market entities. And I showed this in my paper, Magic Weapons, which I, which is there in the um, Wilson Center, if you want to read it, you can see how um, uh, large Chinese companies, whether private or state-owned, um, can be involved in CCP United Front work, for example, um, being the source of donations into political parties. And there's an intertwining of interests. The United Front work, um, or United Front, is a Leninist concept. Uh, Lenin um, talked about in one of his famous articles, criticizing 
uh, his uh, fellow communist members um, for not being willing to form uh, alliances where necessary temporary alliances for a long-term goal. It's an article called uh, on leftist infantilism. And the CCP has made this concept their own. So every united front has a chief enemy. And in, the, in World War II, the chief enemy in China's united front was Japan. But in the present day, the main target, the chief enemy of the, of the CCP's united front work is the United States. Hence the focus on um, allies and partners of the US, such as New Zealand or Australia or the UK. Um, and there's been a lot of attention on that. But uh, one of the things that I um, highlighted when I first presented my research in Washington, D.C. back in 2017 is that the U.S. is the main target and the U.S. Has also, is also experiencing a lot of United Front work activity and more on that in a minute. So there are both domestic pressures um, and a foreign policy agenda that comes behind the, um, um, the CCP's enhanced, expanded, united front work. CCP under Xi Jinping is ruling China in crisis mode and trying to impose its will over Chinese society, rolling out policies that were followed, um, draconian policies that were followed in, in Xinjiang and Tibetan areas more broadly across the whole of um, China. And we're seeing um, United Front work prominent in domestic Chinese politics, as well as internationally, China feels itself um, subject to what the party would call hostile uh, foreign forces. It, it's aware that it has um, negative international um, public opinion, and so it needs to step up its efforts to try and change that. And so I've looked at case studies um, in, the, in the, the last few years, not uh, many, many different case studies looking at China's political interference activities. I've looked at New Zealand in detail, but I also then used the template that I created in the Magic Weapons paper to look at Albania. I've looked at many different Pacific Island states. I've looked at Iceland, Japan, and through the work of my graduate students, I've been looking at Vietnam, and um, Pakistan. And so what I've found is that um, we can find um, many of the different approaches of CCP United Front work that I identified in my Magic Weapons paper template, but they vary according to the society. For example, whether a society has a large um, overseas Chinese diaspora, um, that may become an important vector in a country like New Zealand that has a significant overseas Chinese population and a country like Albania, that's a very, it's not a priority. Um, uh, other aspects such as elite capture become more important. But the CCP, like Russia, will find the cracks in our society. And I use the analogy of water on limestone. Every block of limestone will have cracks. We can't necessarily perceive them um, with our own eyes, but Russia and China are looking for the cracks in our society and looking to exploit them. 
So I want to go and do a, in a, a little bit of a tangent now and give a bit of a backdrop to the, the change in geopolitics and, the, and from China's point of view and thinking that has led up to um, some aspects, important aspects of United Front work as I've identified it in the Magic Weapons paper. So I first want to talk to you about the politics of maps. You will be, being in northern, um, the northern hemisphere, will be used to seeing the world um, in, in, through the lens of the map on the left here, an Atlantic-centred ocean. And um, the rest of the world, um, like the part of the world that I live in here in New Zealand, um, and the states of the South Pacific and the Southern Hemisphere are used to seeing a Pacific-centered map. Um, but maps are cultural and historical and political, and they're also not even necessarily um, geographically accurate. The, the, um, the sizing of states has to be uh, fitted in to uh, the dimensions of the map. So we're getting a, a, sorry, we're getting a very particular view of the world decided by these historical and political uh, visions of our world. Here's another vision of the world, a, um, representing the new geopolitics. And it's a, this is an official map of China. It is written by, it was created by a, um, a very um, ambitious and original uh, geographer who I went to interview in Wuhan. And it's influenced by the thinking of the founder of modern geopolitics, Harold Mackinder, who talked about the world island. And in this vision of the world, it's a China-centered border. And you can see how the uh, countries of the world are mostly connected by land. Um, you see how um, Antarctica is prominent in this map, like a white peacock. You can see the um, Arctic is like a, um, um, is in a middle ocean. In Chinese, the word for Mediterranean is um, a middle ocean that is uh, connecting uh, North Asia to uh, North America. And you see overall the prominence of China. China is a heartland. So this map is used by the, um, is now used by the PLA and has been so for uh, about 15 years. It was issued, um, it's used for their missile timing and positioning, sorry, for their positioning. And it is, was issued as a official map of China in 2014, part of a um, package of maps by the Hunan um, Publishing Company. And the, the map that, that it was appear with got a lot of attention. It was the first ever official map of China with the nine dash line. Um, but this map is much more significant politically. So China's new geopolitical thinking, uh, which really highlights um, maritime policy, and Xi Jinping has very much emphasized this um, since he has come to power, you might be surprised to know, is influenced by um, yet another foreigner, 
this time not a, a German or a Russian one, um, but an American, um, Alfred Mann. So Alfred Mann was a naval historian and he was writing um, for uh, the US government uh, trying to work out how, uh, look, looking at the rivalry between um, the Great Britain and France and um, how the, um, rise, the rising powers had, um, uh, who, who had been, been able to succeed and, and how they'd been able to dominate. And um, these were the categories that he highlighted as being important for a rising power. A rising power had to develop a blue water navy to be able to protect their sea lines of communication. And China had not originally had a Blue Water Navy. The um, People's Liberation Army Navy um, was, um, set, was set up on um, the advice of the Soviet Union, and it was designed to protect um, China's coastal waters. And um, there's been a revision of that thinking, a turning against <clears throat> Soviet thinking on um, naval forces since the early 1980s, when the then um, Chinese Minister of Defense uh, issued new thinking. And back in the 1980s, China had limited ability to develop that thinking. And as I said, that double digit growth has really helped to forward that vision. And we now see China uh, with a very uh, significant Blue Water Navy. And the next piece of advice that Man offered was that uh, rising power had to have uh, access um, to, to be involved in global markets and have privileged access to resources in order to help to stimulate economic growth and be a dominant power. It can be through colonies or it can be through market access. And China is indeed now a global economic power which is seeking privileged access to strategic resources. And the final point that Mann makes is the need to develop maritime consciousness in the population. Historically, China, whether in dynastic times, whether in the time of the Republic of China or in the, since 1949, has not had strong maritime consciousness in the population. So uh, educating the population and making them aware and interested in the maritime domain is another priority, according to Alfred Mann. So here's another influence on this geopolitical thinking, Harold Mackinder. Harold Mackinder wrote a famous book after World War I, um, where he was trying, like many, to understand why had Europe gone to war so many times. And here you see his map, uh, which was extremely um, original uh, in his time, connecting the world, this connected um, world island, which the map I showed you, the vertical map, is inspired by. And Harold McKinder famously spoke about the heartland. He who rules East Europe commands the heartland. Who rules the heartland commands the world island. Who rules the world island commands the world. So Mackinder talked of um, Europe as the heartland, um, but in this map here, you can see China um, 
as clearly as the heartland of this map. And of course, the traditional and current uh, word for China is the Middle Kingdom. There is another uh, foreign influence on China's maritime thinking. And again, it's uh, Americans, Dean Atchison and John Foster Dulles. Atchison's, uh, the, comment, the concept that Atchison, then Secretary of State, promoted of the island chains. And here you see um, a map showing the first, second, and third island chain, which goes, the third goes from the Aloysians down Hawaii, all the way down to New Zealand, down to Antarctica. And that maps actually the dimensions of the Indo-Pacific command to this present day. So the island chains concept is still very important. And the series of hub and spoke defense pacts that the United States set up in the 1950s, starting with the um, peace treaty with Japan, and then the ANZUS treaty, uh, treaties with Korea and the Republic of China, and then the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. And, and John Foster Dulles had another concept that's influenced China a lot, and that's the concept of peaceful evolution. The idea that more and more, uh, that, the, that the US and other states should engage more and more with the Eastern Bloc, um, particularly culturally and socially and economically. And the more that it does so, it will erode communism and gradu gradually um, lead to a peaceful evolution. So from the CCP's point of view, that's containment. And that's an example of hostile foreign forces trying to break up China. So you can see um, from what I'm trying to share with you here, um, some aspects of why United Front work would be important to the CCP. It's in part defensive, um, and it has been um, for uh, a long time. Um, but I would say that it's gone on the offensive under Xi Jinping. So there's one more factor I want to draw your attention to in the CCP's evolving maritime doc, uh, doctrine and the connection it has to CCP political interference. And that's a deep fear of choke points. So famously, 80% um, of China's trade um, goes through the Malacca Strait. And um, so there is China's geopolitical thinking in part is part of trying to look at uh, alternatives from that uh, choke point. So these are the four uh, points that I highlighted in my Magic Weapons paper, which began with a template of CCP political interference activity based on um, what I found uh, CCP um, policies, documents of um, uh, agendas uh, aiming and, and um, and strategies to influence foreign um, publics and engage in uh, activities that would uh, connect to enhance CCP interests and policies. So the first category is, um, and, and, that, and here I don't put them in order um, because they, as I said before, they differ in how in, significant they are for each country and each country has a different setup. Each country is a different set of block, block of limestone. But for my country, New Zealand, and any country that has a significant uh, overseas uh, Chinese diaspora, um, a very prominent vector of CCP political interference efforts to target and to manage that Chinese diaspora 
to manage their community groups, to bring their media under control, um, and in some cases to utilise or attempt to utilise um, people within the ethnic Chinese community as agents, whether witting or not, of Chinese foreign policy. So that's very difficult for our Chinese diasporas, um, as I've identified in my research, um, for example, using New Zealand um, as the case study, our, our Chinese population, are they're not all from mainland China, about um, just over 50% are recent migrants from mainland China, but those who were voted with their feet. Um, we have people who historically for Chinese from, um, have come from Malaysia or Vietnam or Hong Kong and Taiwan. Uh, they don't relate to the CCP, um, but the CCP views the um, um, overseas Chinese community as uh, potentially a threat for CCP rule. Historically, um, Sun Yat-sen, the first president of the Republic of China, spent most of his adult life living outside China and supported by the overseas Chinese diaspora until the Chinese revolution came. And um, the CCP would greatly fear um, any future Sun Yat-sen's being um, nurtured by the overseas Chinese diaspora. And um, the overseas Chinese media could potentially be a great critical voice against the policies of the Chinese mainland. So um, the CCP has really prioritized neutralizing um, the overseas Chinese diaspora, particularly since 1989 with the student protest movement, where there was a degree of support of people within the um, Chinese diaspora for the student protests in China. But it's got a lot more than that under um, Xi Jinping. And the, the outcome, as I've shown um, in my research is that for um, some diaspora communities outside China, there is a real, uh, there's been a real impact on freedom of association, on feelings of safety. People don't feel safe um, because of CCP activity within their communities and their media um, has been, media controls uh, CCP internal media controls have been merged over the, the overseas Chinese uh, media so that reading a newspaper in Chinese, um, if you are in uh, outside China, could be a very different editorial, very no little editorial line from something that you would read in the Chinese mainland. So the second category that I identified was efforts to target foreign elites, particularly foreign political elites, but also the um, business elites. And there's been a real stepping up of the role, not only of the United Front Work Department, but the International Liaison Department, which is the foreign policy arm of the CCP, um, trying to engage in um, diplomatic links via party-to-party -party links, and not just with fellow uh, communist parties, but more broadly. Um, the party is back, as they say, the CCP has, um, is blurring the lines um, between party and state, and using these party links as a tool of United Front work. And I should um, 
should emphasise that United Front Work is not just the task of the CCP United Front Work Department. It's a task of all party members and all party entities. And that's why you'll find many different um, CCP entities engaging in it. And famously, um, Friends of China um, have been involved in China's or incorporated in China's United Front work. And we're seeing more and more um, how prominent politicians have been um, targeted, offered advantages. Um, they themselves may be, um, as often usually it's retired politicians, um, they may be doing business in China, have their own reasons for wanting to um, work closely with the CCP, but the CCP um, is trying to use them as a channel to shape the politics of their countries. And the CCP targets, United Front Work targets local government too, because central government agencies might have um, has the advantage of good advice on foreign policy risk, strategic risk, but local government doesn't necessarily have that level of access. So uh, I noticed last year, um, your former Secretary of State giving uh, an address to US governors, trying to address uh, to alert them to this challenge and how um, there had been efforts to influence and shape US governors. And um, in many countries, we see targeting of city governments and other um, local level governments to try and um, influence and shape their policies and to set up initiatives such as the Belt and Road um, Project, which I'll talk about in a minute, which the central government might not agree to. Universities have been another vector of um, CCP United Front Work. I know a big conversation in the United States um, in the last couple of years has been about civil military transfer of technology to China and, um, and how it breaches both inter our uh, government's international obligations under the Vassana arrangement, but also has great uh, strategic risk. And again, universities are encouraged to um, seek external funding and to engage in research exchanges. Uh, and the CCP um, has uh, encouraged uh, the more and more uh, scientific links <clears throat> and connections with foreign um, universities in order to access technology that it's not able to uh, directly uh, get itself through um, purchasing it or it can't produce itself. And universities have also been a vector to press governments to, um, to not to react to China's political interference activities, universities and, the, and academics have an important role in our democratic society as a voice on government policy. So that's another reason why their interest to CCP political interference. The third vector is China's multi-platform global um, communication strategy. Under Xi Jinping, the narrative is tell a good story of China. China feels itself working in a hostile information environment. It's trying to shape global perceptions about China. We've seen the impact on film, for example. And this didn't start just start under Xi Jinping. There has not been a China-critical movie 
made in Hollywood since 1997, since the two films were made that China objected to very strongly, Kunlun and Seven Years in Tibet. And um, China is a big market for Hollywood. Hollywood wanted to get into China and they were restricted in accessing the China market until relatively recently. The Hollywood films were in China, but they were pirated. And so Hollywood has cooperated with um, CCP um, censorship requirements in order to access the, um, the massive China market. Um, but we're all uh, now experiencing uh, that CCP censorship in film and also in some television production in publishing where a lot of there's a lot of um, international publishing the books are printed in China and that means that they have to follow the same uh, censorship guidelines as required for any other publishing in China. We've also seen the impact on academic publishing. There's been very good research done which documented how um, some of the biggest publishing companies in the world, such as um, Cambridge and Springer, were um, removing any um, sensitive publications from their package of journals that they were then on selling to China. So in this risk, a silencing uh, effect on um, academia um, beyond that what is sent into China. And then there's the impact on the media. So in the Mao era, there were very few foreign journalists in China, um, other than the, the Soviet uh, TASS correspondents. Um, but from the 1980s, the number of foreign journalists gradually grew. And uh, there were, uh, but now we've seen in the last couple of years, a steady uh, reduction in the number of foreign journalists in China. China does not want um, foreign eyes on the political uh, situation in China. It uh, has abused the Western media as hostile. Uh, it also views, uh, believes that many Western journalists are akin to spies and, and some of them literally spies. And so we've seen many um, Western journalists forced out of China in recent years, and now there's now only a handful of Western journalists remaining in China. So that has an impact on the rest of us um, as well as um, suiting um, the controls that China wants. So the final um, vector is China's Belt and Road Initiative. And you can see from what I was saying before about the fear of choke points and the desire to um, strengthen uh, China's control of its sea lanes of communication um, and then the, the expansion of into a blue water navy, um, that thinking of Man and its impact on China's Belt and Road initiative policies. The Belt and Road, it built on um, policies that developed in the Jiang Zemin era, the going out strategy, but it's much more ambitious than that. If, um, Apparently, the Central Propaganda Department has issued instructions that there should be no uh, uh, proper map showing all the links and connections, none issued publicly of the Belt and Road Initiative. 
it would uh, blow your mind if you could see all the dimensions of it. This map shows some of the, um, the broad uh, focus points, but even, even this, which is more information than most because it talks about the Pacific connection. It doesn't show, for example, uh, the um, emphasis on the Arctic as well. Now, multiple uh, land and sea route connections, plans for ports and, and airports. And then there's the digital Silk Road. China, um, like Russia, is developing its own global navigation system. Uh, GPS um, is both a military technology and a civil technology. And it was the uh, Taiwan crisis in, in um, 1995 that um, where there was uh, missiles fired across the Taiwan Strait that the PLA um, realized that um, GPS was not a good technology for China to rely on. They needed their own independent similar technology. But it's not as easy for China or Russia to roll out a global navigation system. They don't have the allies and friendly partners on the scale that the United States does around the world, and they're starting from scratch. But partners in the Belt and Road Initiative are supposed to join the Digital Silk Road to agree to Beidou ground stations, to take Beidou uh, navigation systems in, 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 as a part of navigation systems within their country, to take up Huawei technology and other Chinese telecom, um, which will use Beidou um, in, in their systems. And then they will provide uh, micro positioning information to China's navigation system. So there are strong um, military imperatives to um, the Belt and Road Initiative, as well as being part of a much uh, more ambitious global vision, uh, as I talked about earlier, the new era. So uh, China's political interference activities has had a um, significant impact on many countries like my own. But um, I, and when I first uh, presented my research in 2017, there was a strong defeatist narrative um, many in my country, as in other countries, believe there was nothing we could do. We have um, China's our most important market, and that's the same for many, many countries in the world, that China is their most important market. And, um, and so I, in my research, one of the things I've tried to do is to emphasize that we do have our own magic weapons, and we do have um, many strategies that we can adopt to make ourselves more resilient and um, to address this challenge. And I note that in Kennan's long telegram, um, which had a big influence on thinking on how the US was to respond to the Soviet Union, resilience was something that he emphasized. And so I quote from, um, from Kennan, he says, much depends on health and vigor of our own society. World communism is like malignant parasite which feeds only on diseased tissue. This is, is a point at which domestic and foreign policy meets. 
every courageous and incisive measure to solve internal problems of our own society to improve self-confidence, discipline, morale, and community of our own people is a diplomatic victory worth a thousand diplomatic notes and joint communiques. If we cannot abandon fatalism and indifference in face of deficiencies of our own society, and he says Moscow, we could replace that with Beijing or add in Beijing now that Russia political interference is also a great challenge, will profit. And they cannot help prof profiting by them in their foreign policies. So as I identified, democracies have magic weapons and now is the time to use all those um, um, magic weapons and, and our governments can assess the damage, do their own assessments and look at ways in which we can uh, fix legislation or utilize legislation to increase funding to our agencies who could address the threat. We need a public conversation about this issue and many countries have followed this approach, including my own. The second resilient strategy that we need um, is to forge what I call the United Front against the United Front. And it's Leninist uh, thinking when it's not an ideological connection, it's identification of a common threat and some uh, points in which countries can cooperate on. And what I've really emphasized has been looking to support each other economically as so many countries have felt very vulnerable because of their economic dependence on China. And, uh, and information sharing is very important too. What I showed in my research is that the CCP political interference activities uh, have a recognizable pattern and, and they're often cross-national too. Um, so countries can, can strengthen their um, resilience by sharing information um, of what they're experiencing. And it's really important when we're looking at these issues that our leaders and commentators make a very clear distinction between China, the nation, the CCP, the Chinese population living in China and the Chinese diaspora. Our Chinese communities need our support. And I know you've just had a terrible incident in the United States um, recently of um, a hate attack against your Asian community. So this is a very difficult issue to, to deal with and we have to be extremely careful with our language. And we need to help to our Chinese communities to restore uh, truly local and diverse Chinese language media and community groups. And um, where possible, we can support other states in, in, um, in developing better knowledge about the CCP and its policies. So that was my advice four years ago. How's it going? Well, in 2018, uh, January 2018, the US uh, issued its Indo-Pacific framework and it's there to the right of me and you'll see there's quite a bit of talk about uh, China's political influence activities that was directly impacted by those two thunderbolts that came from Australia and New Zealand in September 2017. And soon after the, uh, and, and, and crystallizing thinking that was already there, of course, and awareness in the US. 
And then the National Defence Strategy was issued um, uh, soon after. And that also had a, a, a clear view of the challenges. And so the next goal um, that um, developed was a, um, a growing bipartisan consensus in Congress and, um, and then amongst the states, which was harder under your former president um, because of the great political divide that we can see, the world can see, and I know that you have all experienced. And it was hard to get the support of the allies also um, because of that, um, because of perceptions of your president. Uh, but nonetheless, there were joint agreements as countries could see the challenge and it was just a matter of how to deal with it. So in September, 2018, the Five Eyes signed a communique on working together on foreign interference. And a big economic agreement was signed. It was originally called TPPA, um, but the US government pulled out. Um, so it was renamed CTPPA. And um, so it's been uh, not the, the developments in the Trump administration to address this issue, I think, were not as powerful as they could have been because of uh, some diversions in uh, approaches and perhaps a lack of uh, emphasis on, on the allied response. But this is coming in very strongly now in the Biden administration. Um, with an emphasis on re-strengthening allied relations. And the, um, yesterday an assessment was released um, by the Office of National Intelligence talking about China's great fear of the Biden administration being able to organize a global alliance against China. Well, that's essentially what the United Front against the United Front would be. The Biden administration has um, reassured allies and partners by um, rejoining the Paris Agreement. Um, we're seeing many more freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea, not just from the US, but recently Germany, for example, which shows that allies share US concerns. And we're seeing efforts to um, coordinate uh, allies on how to set up agreements on strategic technology to access strategic minerals and to coordinate their COVID response. So I would assess that we are now seeing that the United Front against the United Front is starting to come together, that um, many states are not just addressing political interference in their own countries, but they are coordinating and um, supporting each other. Um, and be more resilient. So that's all I wanted to talk about from my talk and I welcome your questions. Uh, you're on mute, William. <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Brady. Uh, uh, your work has been a real revelation to a lot of the world about some of the things that are going on. Uh, <clears throat> let me start with a question about uh, the priorities of 
United Front work. Um, they do different things. Um, they steal military secrets. They uh, steal technology uh, and other things for economic purposes and negotiation purposes. Uh, they sell their system as superior. Um, one thing the Russians do is to deliberately try to disrupt democracies and make it difficult for democracies to function. Uh, we've, we've seen that in the US election, the Russians tried to interfere directly on the side of Trump and the, the Chinese decided not to interfere. Um, what, what are their priorities? Are, do, they, do they share Russian interest in uh, deliberately dis disrupting democracies? Yeah, I think we can say that that would definitely be the case, that um, political interference in the case studies, China's political interference in the case studies that I've seen um, that I've looked at across many countries are um, having a negative impact on democracies. It is not democratic to have a foreign power trying to direct political the policies of political parties, um, and especially covertly. Um, and um, it's having a corrupting and corroding um, effect on um, on many societies. So it's undermining democracy, it's undermining trust in governments and trust in political parties. It's leading towards, uh, it has a risk of leading towards alienation and, and cynicism towards governments. And, um, but we're also seeing that China is following some of the approaches of Russia to disinformation, um, just to de destroy people's confidence in uh, particular measures, for example, on COVID vaccines, um, to, uh, to cast doubts on the vaccines that are being used um, widely um, the, uh, in, around the world that have come out of um, Europe, um, the Pfizer vaccine and the AstraZeneca, and to um, to to highlight that only the Chinese vaccine is safe. Um, so, I mean, that's a recent example of um, a, a dis disinformation efforts underway. So, yeah, China uh, will, wants to work with governments, but ones that will work with China. Um, but inherently, it prefers uh, uh, acquiescent governments, and that is not good for either for our sovereignty or for our um, democracy. Thank you. Uh, when they uh, try to discredit uh, Western vaccines, is the purpose to uh, market their own vaccine or, or is it to uh, undermine confidence in Western governments or, or both? Um, well, I think that that's a, 
it'd be hard to, to, without access to the party um, documents, to assess what which um, is more important. I'm sure there is a commercial um, interest, um, but it also um, leads. It, it uh, you know, we're seeing in the in the Southwest Pacific the efforts to push uh, Chinese vaccines and um, China access to Chinese. PPE as a tool of foreign policy. So it can serve a, um, the agenda of binding countries closer to China and creating strategic um, dependencies on various countries and getting, and also we've seen that China, China's foreign ministry has announced in the last week that it will facilitate foreigners getting a visa who have the Chinese um, vaccine, have had this Chinese vaccine. Well, if you're in a place like New Zealand where we don't have, our government has not approved the Chinese vaccine uh, so far, um, that means that our business people um, and our New Zealand Chinese people who might have been going back to China or anybody else who's visiting China won't be able to go unless they have access to the Chinese vaccine. So that can also be used as a means to get um, elites to put pressure on their government about their relationship with China. Thank you. Um, we have some other questions. Uh, uh, one is from Molly Silk, who's a third year PhD student at the University of Manchester. She notes that in your uh, original or famous article, you talk about using uh, uh, the, the United Front using culture as a soft power uh, device or lever. Uh, how is that working out compared with the negative impact of China's authoritarian image? Um, well, here's an example. Um, every um, year, um, people around the world celebrate the Lunar New Year. But since 2012, part of China's Tell a Good Story of China messaging has been promoting this as the Chinese New Year. Um, but people, it's not just the Chinese New Year, people in Vietnam, for example, celebrate the Lunar New Year. Um, and um, it's been very successful rebranding. Many, many um, countries have now taken on that terminology, not necessarily realizing the political aspects to it. And um, there are that the, the um, Chinese embassies abroad are very, very involved in Chinese New Year celebrations. So um, the and in doing so, there is. Um, for example, the community groups who are cooperating with the embassy or who are, in fact, some of them are proxy organizations, United Front organizations who are prominent in those activities. And um, we've seen in the last couple of years um, displays on Xinjiang as the CCP would like to see it, us to see it. And um, Many uh, of our politicians will go and attend those Chinese New Year events, thinking that in so doing, they're honoring the diaspora community and their celebrations. So the challenge is, is to, for our governments to find a way to honor 
those cultural traditions, but to do so without the heavy hand of the Chinese embassy on the events and the connections and the emphasis on activities that are run by CCP um, <clears throat> United Front groups overseas. Um, so I have been urging uh, my government to seek out the Lunar New Year celebrations that are genuinely uh, diaspora uh, gatherings and to minimise their participation in those that are organised by the embassy. And until recently, the majority of our Lunar New Year celebrations in my country were embassy uh, connected and authorised in some way or another. The scale of it, the stuff is phenomenal. And there have been very little um, alternatives and our politicians just um, blindly attended those events. So um, the cultural activities are still um, strong, uh, depending on where you where you're look where you're looking. Thank you, Bill Shaw. Did you have a, a question? Yes, I want to compliment you and Marie your enlightened uh, research and talk, and give us a different view, particularly about the United uh, Front. Uh, I would like to ask you a two-part question. In this geopolitical confrontation, I, because I will call your target a confrontation of two sides, what have the United States done around the world that or Russia have done previously in any kind of geopolitical struggle. Is China different than what the United States had done around the world? Interfering into other countries' politics, influence their elections? And then my subsidiary question though is, does China have the soft power to really persuade other nations to join them in the United Front. Yes, China may have economic um, power and also greater military power, but does China really have the soft power as Joseph Nye has defined it? Thank you. Thank you, Professor Xiao. So um, your first question, um, with all due respect, is what's called whataboutism. So what that means is that we say um, somebody's doing something bad, so we can't criticise something else that's bad done by someone else. So in, I'm a specialist on Chinese politics, so I've focused in my research on what the CCP is doing because that's what I've been trained to do and I'm employed to do. So I... Uh, I agree that the US has been involved in many, many activities that, um, that are worthy of criticism and analysis. And there has been uh, uh, many aspects that we can see are parallel. And as I said in my research, uh, China's United Front work was initially defensive. It was responding to what the US um, and its partners were doing. And I talked about peaceful evolutions um, concept for a start. But I don't think it's okay that we say 
Well, just because the US and other countries have engaged in this kind of behavior that we regard as uh, unacceptable, that we can't look at what China's doing and address it and, and discuss it. You know, I'm really, really concerned about a narrative that's developed recently about the situation in Xinjiang with Uyghur and, and also Kazakhs who have been targeted by the CCP. Um, that because of uh, the ways, for example, uh, of which uh, countries treat uh, their indigenous, other countries treat their indigenous people, um, that they can't uh, speak up about Xinjiang. We should both address the problem of how our indigenous peoples have suffered and acknowledge that painful history and speak up for the human rights of the people in Xinjiang. We have to be able to hold uh, complex ideas and, and recognize that there are um, things worthy of criticism in every country. So I, um, I think that it's wrong to just um, to, to distract from the topic of our conversation right now, which is China by saying the US has just done the same thing. I think that we need to raise the concerns about the US, um, which are often very well known, um, but at the same time, we need to talk about this issue with China because it hasn't has been hidden, it's been deliberately hidden. And um, for the health of our societies, we need to address it and make ourselves more resilient. And my focus in my research, actually, I mean, I'm from a small state. We don't have the ability to, to get many countries to do what we want. Um, but what we can do is make ourselves more resilient and strong. And um, so that's been my advice um, to, um, in, to my government and many other governments. So this, your second question about whether or not China has soft power that can get countries to join in its United Framework, well, you've, you've got the concept a bit wrong there. First of all, um, Joseph Nye has been hugely critical of how Russia and China have misused the soft power terminology. Hu Jintao's government put, uh, adopted the soft power term in 2007, and Nye says that the way that Russia and China use soft power is not what he means by soft power at all. Um, and um, the Russians have this concept of smart power, which they can say is a clever use of uh, the useful bits of soft power and hard power combined. And they're doing that in, um, in their Antarctic policy, for example. So United Front work is, um, is not something that you attract countries to. It's it meant it's a, it's a secret CCP policy and a strategy that is um, that is used to as a tool of China's um, foreign policy, and sometimes is used in intelligence activities and also for military agendas. So there is a lot of um, yeah, covert activity involved in the United Front. So it's it's not about, um, again, it doesn't match the soft power, uh, 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 the ideas of what soft power is that you naturally attract countries through your, the strength of your culture or your society. I mean, France is a great example of that. You know, many people are drawn to an interest in France because of the a wonderful cuisine and, and language and literature and so on. 
So here is not a organic natural drawing in of other countries. It's a deliberate targeting of um, elites in different countries to try and get around um, uh, central governments. And here's, here's an example is Australia, the state of Victoria signed an agreement on the Belt and Road Initiative um, when the federal government of Australia was completely opposed to Belt and Road Initiative. And it's taken a long time for the Australian government to unravel that. So, um, yeah, I would say that it's not about, it's not the soft power concept as nice as doesn't match the situation at all. Um, but it does get put on as a label by China because they of their activities because it's been useful to them. So thank you for your questions. Um, yeah, I appreciate your uh, perspective. On, and I agree with you, your first point. I do agree with you, but I do believe that we can still talk about yes. what China's doing. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I have a, a question from an anonymous attendee who says there, there seems to be significant tension between core Western values like freedom of speech and freedom of the press and the types of measures that are needed to curb some of these uh, influence operations. Uh, what can we say about how we balance uh, th these concerns? And uh, this person specifically mentions that attempts to move toward reciprocity uh, and, and treatment of international journalists uh, uh, may be self-defeating uh, or, or self-harming and uh, are met with accusations of being anti-China. Um, yeah, I don't really um, get the first part of the question because I certainly haven't seen examples of how um, making our societies more resilient could be anti-democratic. I think that they are strengthening our democracy. Um, uh, so separately, the question of whether we should follow um, reciprocity with China, um, I mean, it's commonsensical and I, uh, that we should follow reciprocity. Why should we put our societies at a disadvantage um, with China, why shouldn't we be expecting the same? Uh, we won't get what we want if we tolerate activities that are one-sided, that one side is being advantaged over the other. Um, so the, the US approach to China was very shaped by ideological thinking about the peaceful evolution concept moving, merging into the engagement thinking of Kissinger. And it was wrong-headed, believing that more we engage with China, we're going to change the CCP and bring about a democratic transformation. We have to drop that thinking and see China as it is today, and particularly China under Xi Jinping. And the CCP is defending itself and its political system. And we ought to also defend ourselves in our political system. There's another question uh, from another anonymous attendee um, who would like to know how you see uh, Chinese influence in the UN system and international NGOs. 
she says that ha having worked in a UN agency, uh, she's seen how governments like the UK's uh, try to steer UN agencies by uh, funding, by appointments and so on. Uh, is there something uh, particularly uh, uh, important or necessary uh, to be concerned about in, in, in Chinese activities? Uh, the expert on this topic is Andrea Warden, and she has um, published on this with Synopsis. So I, I recommend um, the, the person asking the question, go and look at the website of Synopsis, which is a think tank based in Prague, um, who have published quite a lot of really good quality stuff on China's political interference activities. So they've had a couple of articles on um, both United Front work in the UN system and um, in other international organizations. So I think that, that you'll find the, um, some, some good information in there. Thank you. Well, un unfortunately, our time is up. Uh, there are a number of other uh, uh, questions and maybe they'll follow up with you individually, but uh, we're extremely grateful for for your uh, incisive remarks, and especially because you did it at 5.30 in the morning for us. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking with you all, and um, I, um, I look forward to meeting in person uh, in, the, in the near future. I'm sure it's gonna be possible. We hope so. Thank you. Take care, everyone. Bye. Ka kite. Bye.